Hi, my name is Dan Ariely, and welcome to Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast about science. Every week, I will talk to one researcher about one project who have a chat about what they found and what it means for our lives. When we come together to form groups, political parties, cultural or social groups, we formulate and follow certain rules. This week, Dan talks with Mike Munger, professor of political science at Duke University and author of Choosing in Groups about group decision-making and why we play by the group's rules, even though we may disagree with them. And Mike, uh, who are you? I'm an economist by training, but uh, I'm apostate from that path. So I'm a, I'm a political scientist now. I've been at Duke since 1997. 97? That's, that's a while. I was chair of political science for 10 years, which left a lot of psychological scars. I <laughs> see. On, on you or on the rest of the faculty? Uh, I shudder to think them, but on me also. Okay. Very good. And um, you're interested in uh, joint decision-making? Is that fair? Or group decision-making? Yeah, political scientists generally are interested in the way groups make decisions using political institutions, and that usually means voting, but it doesn't have to. So um, give me kind of what's what's a good example to think about uh, how people make decisions together. Well, we often look at it at a point where it's highly institutionalized, so elections and things like that. I'm interested in what would happen when a group constitutes itself with a small c. So the Constitution, how are we going to choose the rules that we're then going to use to choose outcomes? So what interests me is how do groups come together and then decide to be a group and decide to be bound by outcomes they know they may disagree with. So, for example, we can think about the NBA. I mean, a group of people got together, decide here are the rules. We're going to have salary things. We're going to have rules for how we're going to draft people and so on. It's particularly interesting when you think about a game because a game has to be interesting and competitive. You want to give people, in fact, I, I, I imagine Mr. Naismith could never have foreseen the level of skill that people have developed. You know, there's a, the rules of a game are kind of arbitrary, but some rules are better than others. And so you want them to be relatively fixed. You want to be able to enforce them. And yet you want to be able to uh, adapt them over time. And the rules of basketball have changed a lot. So that's a perfect example. So basketball has changed in what in what ways? Well, they they raised the basket because people were too tall. They uh, implemented a shot clock to make it faster. They they added a referee. Uh, they've changed the way that fouls are called around the basket. They've added a little uh, circle so that near the basket you won't get called for a charge because it was people were getting hurt. So um, do you think that's that's a good example of how a group is making very good decisions? Well. One of the things that the, the, the problem the group faces is that people become attached to the rules, even if the rules are bad. And so the question is, you know, people are the culture and tradition and things that we defend beyond all reason because it's an emotional reaction. You know, we can't change that. That's the way we do things here. That's the Ten Commandments. <laughs> well, and, and there's, there's a good place for that because sometimes you might not fully understand the implications of the rules or what will happen if we change them. So sometimes if you get rid of the rules that you have now, you don't, don't end up with new rules. You end up with chaos. So I can understand the concern, but the, what interests me is groups that are coming together for the first time and trying to decide how can we choose a set of rules that we're in the, where we predict we're going to accept outcomes even if we disagree. So examples for this are new companies that form and basically have a blank slate to decide how they're going to do employment and how they're going to be governance. And I mean, they're bound by some laws about boards of directors, but maybe startups we can think about as having no external rules. Is that the kind of thing that interests you? 
Yes, and there's there's different corporate cultures too. So at, at IBM, you had to wear a short sleeve white shirt, like you looked looked like a Mormon. You had to wear a pocket protector. Where at Apple, you had to wear Hawaiian shirts. And if someone from one of those cultures appeared at the other, you would probably not trust them. So that some of this is is cultural. And I, you know, we don't really know what that word means, but we we use it as if it meant something. But we also have formal rules. So I'm actually a student of Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1993, and was immediately rejected by basically all economists because he was interested in rules and not markets mm-hmm. so um, so what kind of things what kind of things do you study and how do you study them well I, I have a recent book called choosing in groups that came out with Cambridge University Press where I've which which means that it didn't reach any bookstore I'm guessing but it's it's somewhere online available it it, 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 it would not certainly be available in the airport but it, it <laughs> Amazon has everything okay, so it, it, right. it would be there is it it's also available for illegal download or not yet it, it, it's absolutely is I'm very proud of that thank <laughs> you for bringing that up within two days it was so that that's a very good sign it, it was yeah. uh, there's a Chinese website that has it available so the the example that we start with is Lewis and Clark the core of discovery that was sent by Thomas Jefferson to explore the Louisiana Territory um, came to a point where they had to make a decision between three alternative places to spend the winter of 1805-06 and they did a remarkable thing because they're a military unit nonetheless they took a vote it's surprising that who, who decided to take a vote Well, the, the two captains, Lewis okay. and Clark, decided to take a vote. And the reason that this is surprising is they'd already been together for three years, and there had been a disagreement before where Lewis and Clark thought that the correct route was to take the southern fork of the Missouri River, and all the men thought, 30 men thought that the north fork was the correct one. And Lewis and Clark said, well, you can think what you want, but this is a military unit. You're going to do what we say. And the men agreed. You're absolutely right. Of course we will. So what was surprising, I think it was because Lewis and Clark themselves weren't sure, they decided to take a vote. And you can think of at least two reasons why that's true. One is it's an information aggregation mechanism. You're trying to get all the information you can from each person. The other thing is, though, that it creates legitimacy for the outcome because if it turns out badly, well, presumably... You can't blame them anymore. Well, you you have to blame yourself. You're using something like the largest... segment since it was three choices there was no majority but the largest group was in favor of one what was interesting about the result that they used was they used plurality rule or first past the post so it ended up being basically 12 to 12 to 9 so it was indeterminate and that's one of the interesting things that people don't always recognize about political choices we have institutions that usually limit the number of choices to two so that this doesn't yeah. happen we want to determine an outcome and But it's a way of getting around the arrow yeah. problem in a way that may limit other choices, but at least we can have some confidence so, that between those two. So and, and, and part, of, part of your story is about the fact that once you join a society, um, the majority rules seem like a reasonable thing, and you basically feel obliged to do it even if you disagree. So the, the point of agreement, Rousseau, the French. political philosopher asked this great question how can a man be both free and yet bound by wills not his own and that the answer is you agreed to the rules because you know that as a group so the, the procedure basically yes. you're saying I'm abide by the procedure regardless of the outcome as long as the group actually follows the procedure so if they cheat then the group breaks up yeah so it's like in the institution and, and the, the basic idea is that we we join a group we understand the group has lots of value uh, so we come up with procedures that if we follow the The procedures we would not feel okay betraying the group so it's not as if you could say I vote one way it doesn't work my way now I'm leaving yep. or I'm going to start 
from scratch. I'm going to have a vote of no confidence in my government and then restart again. Although we see that, we see a lot of vote of no confidence in government and it seems to suggest that it's not exactly like this. Well, but some of that is within the rules. So you have a vote of no confidence within yeah. the parliament, then there's rules where you can form a new government. In, in so it, it acts as a check on tyranny. What you don't see is that the, the, the governments say, all right, everybody secede and we'll just start over. Because yeah. then you'd have Somalia, where everybody's a warlord and they have guns. Yeah. So, so the notion is that we, for groups to function well, we have to have procedures, and we have to abide by the procedures even when we're unhappy. With this. Now, does that mean that there are going to be some people who would never want to join a group because they say, you know what, uh, this is a group of idiots, I, I'm not going to agree with them, so let me just not join the group to start with? That's certainly possible. I think the real problem comes when we're talking about using this as a justification for the political authority of states because we're all born into a state, almost everywhere. And so the question is, can I say, I didn't agree to these rules and they don't apply to me. Yeah. I didn't agree to this tax policy, I don't want to pay it. In fact, the, the Tea Party in the my United parents, States. My parents got, made me get born here. Yeah. That's not what I choose. Just I want to be Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the question is, under what circumstances? Or, or some of these Mexicans saying, I, I don't want this, I want it to be American, and we, we should accept them. And under, well, so the, the big provisions, you've raised the two big provisions with your one example, is not just consent, but provisions for entry and exit. Can I join the group, and can I leave the group? And those are the things that many groups break up about, not, to, not about policy, but about yeah. entry and exit. And both of us are, are the, the, the entry thing about immigration now is just a terrible problem now for the U.S. Yeah. Uh, do you see any hope, by the way, for the, both the entry and the leaving policies? One of the things that's good about the United States is that we tend to follow rules in ways that other countries might not. So in 2000, I had a number of friends in Russia. And in 2000, the United States had a chaotic presidential election. So it wasn't clear who was going to be president. I had friends in Russia who said, are there tanks around the White House? And which direction are the guns pointing? Because, you know, their experience yeah. was Yeltsin gets up on the yeah. tank. It never happened. And in fact, after, you know, the second election in the Supreme Court, Al Gore said, I accept the legitimacy of this. So we accept outcomes that seem, even if the rules maybe are broken a little bit, we're just a, we're a group of rule-following cooperators. Uh, is this is this perspective, did it help you be a department chair, or was it uh, <laughs> working against you? I found that people were much more willing to accept the outcomes if we scrupulously followed the rules, even when it was clearly irrational to do so. So you have just one or two people who protest. You give them a chance, even though it's clear it's going to lose, because then they, they feel like they had a the voice. The process is... A uh, so, so maybe this is a case when we focus on the process of fairness more than the outcome, and maybe it has some good reasons for it. Even though it's very frustrating. Anytime you've, you've sat in a meeting and someone's droning on and you know that's not what's going to happen, yes, in the long run, you're better just screwing your patients to the sticking point. Okay, so you know what? I'm going to take this to heart, and I'm going to sit through faculty meetings and listen, <laughs> listen more carefully and respect the procedure more, so I and, really and, appreciate it. And not stare at your phone. This has been Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast with Dan Ariely of Duke University. To further expand your understanding of dishonesty, irrationality, and other human quirks, go to danarielli.com.